The first thing I want to do is actually to carry on the reading uh, a little. So would you please turn to page 1077? And uh, Jesus has just said, I am the father of one, and we're going to pick up at verse 31 of chapter 10. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. I'll keep it open if you would, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, stand between Easter and the Ascension. Like the disciples, we may be trying to work out what it is that has gone on. Who is this man? And even if we have come to the conclusion ourselves that he is the Lord then we know that that puzzle is still out there in our world as to who Jesus is. Uh, Open our hearts and illuminate our minds, we pray this morning, that we may be more confident for ourselves and be more certain of the uh, answers that we offer to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have uh, just been to Scotland, to Glasgow on the train for a couple of days. And as you go through the fields of eastern, uh, northeast England and into uh, the lowlands of Scotland, there are fields after field of uh, sheep with lots of very young lambs, all bouncing and kicking and lying about and generally looking unbearably cute. And it was seeing that picture and knowing that John 10 was coming that made me remember this is a very alarming picture as I look out of the train window. It's an alarming picture of the church. First of all, there isn't a ram in sight. It's all mothers and young ones. You've only got to look at our band today, four rams and a ewe. And and, uh, sheep are notoriously stupid. Farmers who keep sheep will tell you that they are always looking for an excuse to die, to do something particularly dim. Do we want to be pictured as a flock of sheep? Now, apart from casual and irrelevant comparisons, Jesus as the shepherd in the whole of chapter 10 is a very protective figure. And it's true for all of us sometimes, that we need that. 
for, for all of us some of the time, but all the time? Is it a fundamental picture of how we see ourselves? So we have to go with what the grain is of what Jesus is saying and how he uses this image. Yes, it is about a good shepherd's protection. Think of the stories of the the lamb uh, uh, around the neck of the shepherd who has gone searching. But that protection is not just from circumstances, though we may feel that. It is from the falsehoods that can guide a life. Earlier on, it's, it's from the hired men who don't have the truth of things at their heart. On Edinburgh Station yesterday, I saw a young man, perhaps 28, uh, dressed up to the nines, rushing for his train. Clearly, he was part of the financial elite of that city, hair fashionably cut, shoes outrageously expensive, um, and the new suit, just so, Conservative enough to look safe with your money, but flash enough to draw attention. And he might have laughed at the idea that he needed protection. And yet he does. He is subject to the damage that thieves and hired men can bring. He may well have an uncle in pain. He may well have been sold the lie that only the fittest survive. He may well not have what the good shepherd offers. Look at verse 10 here. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now for me, that's the verse I always hang on to in chapter 10. When that chapter seems just a bit wussy. It's when the good shepherd is in charge that we have life to the full. And it's with that picture that we go into the reading for today, from verse 22 through to verse 39. I've got an introduction, and then there's two substantial points I want to make. Firstly, verse 22, there came the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. Now, that means nothing to most of us. But about 200 years before Jesus was walking uh, in the grounds of the temple... Uh, the Jews had been in terrible subjection to a kind of mishmash of of Persians and and Greeks uh, who'd taken part of a Jewish um, family and and set them up. But at the same time, they'd introduced idolatry into the very heart of the temple itself. And 200 years before the story that uh, we're dealing with today, there had been a revolt, the Maccabean Revolt, And the temple had been cleansed of its idolatry and there was a great uh, celebration as the lights were lit again and the sacrifices were taken up again and there was a sense in which the Jews were getting back to what they should be doing. It's the feast that we now would call Hanukkah, the feast of light, when the lights are lit in memory of the day when the the lamps were lit once again. It was the rededication to true worship of the temple, the banishing of all idolatry. That is going to matter. Now, on the temple uh, courts, on the far outside of the temple courts, there were um, sort of cloister-like arrangements. 
but on one of them, one of them was covered over, and that was Solomon's colonnade, where Jesus, we're told, is walking. And it was a boundary line between where Jews and Gentiles would mix. Uh, that's going to be important too, because it's about what's real. What's the boundary line here? Anyway, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus, verse 24, and say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Jesus, in one sense, is suspended if he's walking on Solomon's colonnade, suspended between the Jews and the world. But also the language that they're using, the word, is how long will you hold us uh, sort of in midair? How long will you hold us in midair not telling us what sort of creature you are? Are you the Christ? If so, tell us plainly. Well, we know from what happens later on why they want to know. Do they want to know in order to follow him and give their lives to him? No, they don't. They want to know in order to work out, is this a day to pick up a stone and stone you? That's why they want to know. So there's no sense for them of inquiring out of humble hearts. Now, Jesus begins, first of all, by saying, I did tell you. Well, actually, you could search through the whole of the um, Gospel uh, of John, and you will not find any time where he did say, by the way, folks, I am the Messiah. He doesn't say it in those terms. But here and there and here and there, he does what the Messiah was expected to do. So when he says, I did tell you, what he means is, no, I didn't actually articulate the words. If I'd done that you would have got completely the wrong set of expectations in your head. So what I did was actually got about the business that the Messiah is supposed to do to correct your expectations. I have given you the answer, would be a a reasonable way of putting it. Uh, You want an answer? I have given you the answer, but the penny hasn't dropped. You haven't got it yet. And now we come to the two substantial points. And the first one of these is this. Jesus is the one who calls his sheep. Uh, 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you, did not, you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So he mentions miracles, and then he mentions sheep. And in the classic arrangement of ancient writing, you mention one thing, you mention another, and then you go to the thing you mentioned last and work backwards. So you deal with miracles, I'm mentioning miracles, mentioning sheep, now I'm going to talk about sheep, and I'm going to then talk about the miracles. So the first thing he actually talks about is the sheep. Uh, You don't believe because you are not my sheep. Now, through uh, chapter 10 in the early verses, the question is, who is the right shepherd? Who's the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the right shepherd, the authentic one? Now the question is, who are the sheep? You don't listen because you are not my sheep. I do have sheep, and they do listen. They listen because I am the authentic shepherd with rights over them, and they follow, verse 27, because they hear the voice of the one who made them, who belongs to them. I know them, second part of verse 27, I made them, and I hold them, 
No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, this is why I want to go back to what they said. You see, they said, how long are you going to hold us in suspense? And Jesus says, yes, the people I'm talking about, the sheep, I have grasped them, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. They are not in suspense. You keep us in suspense, they said. Jesus said, no, for my sheep, I hold them unshakably. You want to know, but you think you're in suspense because you haven't made up your minds. But for those who know me and follow me, they know that I hold them unshakably. And to them, he says, verse 28, I give eternal life and they shall never perish. Earlier on, chapter 10, I give fullness of life. I will look after my sheep and they will come in and they will go out and they will have life, life to the full. But now, he adds, he adds that extra dimension. This life, it's going to be eternal. It's going to go on forever. In this life, you want to make up your minds and wonder whether it's the right time to stone me. But I tell you, the life I'm talking about goes on forever. And it's not just about me. Verse 29, my father has given them to me. And he's greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Quite deliberately using the same phrase. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Why is that? Because I and the father are one. Now I was um, a a bit puzzled about how to convey this. uh, We're meeting in a church on a Sunday. We expect, having had our creed, to, to reckon that Jesus and the father are one. And probably, uh, from what we know, we can recognize, yes, it's I and the Father are one. There's something plural, not am one, but plural, are, but one. It's a unity of will and purpose. But then I was talking uh, uh, with someone, uh, John Drake, before the service, who's just come back uh, from Jerusalem, where he's been in conversation with those who are working in tough Muslim environments. I I take it that we know the greatest offence to any Muslim is the notion that God can be more than one simple being. And John was saying that uh, the stories they are hearing of those working as Christians in difficult territory is that not just ordinary people, but mullahs, are turning to Christ. Hundreds are having the dreams that come to so many uh, Muslim people of a man in white summoning them. Now, for those people, imagine what it means to read John 10 and that verse, I and the Father are one. That, That there is this identity between the man in white, the good shepherd, and God the Father. No one can snatch them out of the hand of one. No one can snatch them out of the hand of the other. Well, of course, they pick up exactly what that means. Verse 31, they um, start to pick up stones to stone him because they understand that this claim 
is sufficiently a claim to be with God, to be God in some sense, that it has to be, by their rules, blasphemy. Now, these are big stones, by the way. They weren't just little pebbles that you would, you would kind of uh, pick up. It means going into the, the fields of Norfolk and picking up great big flints. When you pick up, those are stoning flints. Uh, and and you would, you would, you'd pick them up and do the business with them. It represents a serious commitment to do this. And it is for the second time, and, for the, and the first time it was for blasphemy as well. Jesus is the one who calls his sheep and holds them unshakably because he and the Father are one. But then secondly, Jesus is the one who is called Son by the Father. He's made this huge claim. So he has to explain this identity claim that he is making. And so we go into the second part, verse 34 onwards. And we begin with what's a puzzle. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82. It was a psalm uh, written, and there was some puzzle for the rabbis of Jesus' own time. What was this about? And the tradition had grown up that it was about the time when Moses had appointed judges to judge alongside him. They were important and powerful figures, so much so that uh, Psalm 82 speaks of these enormously important people as gods. It was, of course, way back in the time of writing Psalms, a relatively easy word to throw around, gods. So uh, uh, Psalm 82 talked of uh, gods in that sense and expressed God's God's, disappointment that these judges didn't actually do a particularly good job. They did a bad job, and he is very cross with them. And that's how Psalm 82 uh, goes on. It's a a psalm that prays uh, to God to come and defend those whom these characters of the gods have not done properly with. And the tradition grew up that that's what Psalm 82 was about. And Jesus is picking up on that tradition. If it says, uh, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, their function was established by the word of God, and scripture can't be broken, what about the one now whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? If in a smaller case, God was happy to use the language of gods, why would you complain now that the language is used in a much more certain case? Now, let's be honest, that logic doesn't work for us. The point is that it worked for them. It was the way that the rabbis of Jesus' time would have worked. And just, we, we, we will miss this, unless we notice it quite carefully. 36, what about the one whom the Father set apart? Set apart, sanctified, made holy. That's what the Feast of Dedication was about, remember. It was the time when the temple... The altar of the temple was once again set apart, sanctified, made holy to receive the holy worship of the holy people. So when Jesus is saying, the Father has set me apart, he is saying, that altar has now served its purpose. It's great that it was uh, rededicated, but that has now gone 
because the one set apart is no longer an altar, but the one you're looking at. That's the claim that's hidden in verse 36. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? This is not a block of stone. God has taken, what was that, that song we, we sang, A Baby He Became? God has taken a baby, set him apart, and thrust him into the world as the place of worship. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. Now again, you have to think of the, the kind of the way that their minds and their system worked. You always needed two witnesses in, in Jewish law. So first of all, there's the witness of the word of God that he's pointed to through Psalm 82 and the comparisons. Now he's saying, let's look at the miracles and they are the other witness. And what matters is that you cannot bear witness to yourself. You have to have two witnesses who are doing that for you. So when they say to him, we're doing this for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God, what Jesus is saying is, look, it's not about what I claim. It's about what is claimed from on high. It's about the testimony that is born about me because I am not here to make claims about myself. I do not need to be making claims about myself. It is enough for me to trust in God the Father. So now with this discussion of miracles, we're picking up that reference at the very beginning. Do you remember? Miracles, sheep. Let's explain it in terms of sheep and miracles. He's got to miracles now. If, um, if you were an ambassador in uh, those times, then just, I suppose, like any ambassador, ambassador now, what you say when you are in the, foreign, the court of the foreign king uh, stands for the presence of the king's own self, though the king may be far away. What you do is on behalf of the king who may be far away. So the, the argument that is going on here is if, if you don't believe me, don't worry about that. Don't worry about my witness, but rather believe the works because the works speak and represent not me, but the one who stands behind, the one who has sent me. Believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, his representative, and I, his representative, am in the Father. So again, they try to seize him, verse 39, but he escapes their grasp. Well, we do stand between Easter and the Ascension. This has, happens to be a reading selected for this time. When we, we've had the story, the narrative of Jesus rising, and now we're reflecting and saying, yes, but what does that say about who this man is? And John 10 comes along with these enormous claims, I and the Father are one. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The one who's, where the story will pick up, who ascends to the Father, is someone who is with the Father. Someone who is in the Father. Someone who can say, I and the Father are one. Now, just imagine the scene. 
Jesus is standing, debating with them, while they've got stones in their hands ready to kill him. Not only that, he is appealing to them. If, uh, in verse, if you go with verse 26, they would feel excluded. You don't believe because you are not my sheep. In that, there is a sense of you are or you aren't, and a decision has been made. But later on, that doesn't stop him appealing to them. If I do it, verse 38, if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles. Please, believe this stuff that you may know and understand. They are standing with stones ready to kill him, and he is saying, please believe this stuff so that you'll be part of the sheep and you'll come in and go out and have life to the full, life eternal. Well, as a small conclusion, a minor conclusion, we'll come to a bigger one, a more important one in a minute. As a small conclusion, just register this. Who Jesus is, is not something that he thinks it's important to make his own claim about. His identity is not something that he thinks, this is who I am when I've woken up this morning. As far as he is concerned... His identity is wrapped up in who he relates to, that way as the sheep, and that way as the father. It's not an abstract, it's not something uh, chosen differently each day. Now, I think that matters in the issues of all the issues of identity that are going on in our society at the moment, especially in matters of sexuality and marriage legislation. I am not my own is one of the messages this comes over with. I am not my own to do with as I please. I belong to other relationships, and it's those that define me, the sheep that I hold and the one with whom I am one. But that's, as I say, a minor conclusion. I think it's worth mentioning. But more importantly, for Jesus... He uh, stands positioned in unshakable unity with the Father and in an unshakable unity with us because nothing can snatch us from his hand. And those two, for Jesus, belong together. And that, to me, says something to us as we go about our, our daily business, I suppose. This is about, this whole text is about who Jesus is and what he came to do, to be, to be God, the Father, in the world, claiming his sheep as their true, their one and only shepherd. He is the one who fulfills the ancient longing and intention of God that there will be a people in this world. He calls a people into being as his sheep, so that there will be a people who have fullness of life for all eternity. And and yes, he calls you and me into that. He's come as the emissary from the creator to abolish all idolatry, false gods, false hopes, and to call each one of us and each one to whom we speak to join that flock, that people, That young man in Edinburgh 
passed me in a split second in a scrum rushing for a train. I hope someone, if they haven't already, one day gets to pass on to him the call of the shepherd. Because history will one day be seen as the story of that flock. Jesus is the shepherd calling out on the hills to those who will follow. Because there is a life to be lived in fullness. But more than anything else, what I want us to take away is this, that Jesus is as unable to let you go as he is to stop being with the Father, to being one with the Father. I, I, I always worry, because I know there's always a demand in any congregation that, you know, give me something to get me through the week. I have no idea how Jesus standing in chapter 10 gets us through the week. I haven't a clue, to be honest. But I reckon that if God thought, thought it was worth recording chapter, one, chapter 10, there was probably a reason for it. And I guess it's this, that we go into the week, whatever it will hold for us, with that knowledge. It's not about details. It's not about running the practicalities of our life. It's about reminding us that what we stand on as we undertake the adventure that is life, the going out and the coming in, the the fullness of life, the eternal life, as we undertake that adventure among his people. It's Jesus, if you like, uh, doing what Paul is doing in Romans 8, what Paul is doing in Ephesians 3. Hang on to this, that Jesus is as unable to let you go as he is to stop being one with the Father. Let's pray. It doesn't have the details of practical life in it. So in a moment of quiet, you bring those details. I can look out here, I can see those dealing with traumas of all kinds. But whatever they are, he is as unable to let you go as he is to stop being one with the Father. Lord God, we may perhaps have some sense of what that confidence might mean for us as we face the issues in front of us today. But earlier in this chapter, there's been words about sheep in other places. And we pray that that confidence, that unshakability that enables us to take mad adventures, to go off to Jerusalem and to dangerous territory like John has done, that confidence that can do all things because we know that it's unshakable, 
May we burn to bring that confidence to others. Maybe it'll be to confident, rich young men on the train platform. Maybe it will be to elderly at ho- uh, housebound at home. Maybe it'll be in a thousand different contexts. But your voice as the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the one and only authentic right shepherd, goes out to call people to yourself, even if they're waiting, standing to stone you. And so we pray that we may have the courage to bring that summons to others. Amen.